you are away from something that is comfortable. How do you act when you're around strangers or far away from home? You know, let's hear from some people that are far away from home for the first time in some of the letters that they've written back to home. Dear Mom and Dad and Nana, I'm having fun. Not. I hate this camp. It's a dump. Come pick me up. I'm crying. Pick me up tomorrow. Another letter. Dad and Mom, I miss you. I'm having fun. My hair is totally... But don't forget to put them away. I barely have anything to say. I love you. You know, at the beginning of this letter, I said I miss you. That's wrong. I really, 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 really miss you. Love, Amanda. Hi, Mama. Yesterday was awesome. We had a fire and more. But today was bad. I got water up my nose. I skinned my leg. And I get bit by a donkey. <laughs> Ow. Come get me, please. Love your hurt daughter, Shay. And the last one. How are you? I want to go home now. I love you very much. Around dinner, I cry and miss you. Please reply or come. I miss you and I want to go home now. P.S. The wet spots are my tears. <laughs> you know, it makes your heart hurt. How would you respond to such a letter? What kind of letter would you send back? Today, we're going to see a letter back to a people who are homesick, who are hurting, who are exiles. How does God speak to people in this place? Well, maybe some of you feel like you're writing a letter like one of these camp kids. You feel out of place. You feel far away from home. And here is a letter, a letter from God back to you. And I hope it will be an encouragement to you in hearing it today. So let's look together, shall we? Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1 through 14. It's printed in your worship guide. It's on page 656 of um, the Pew Bibles. Let's pay attention as we look at God's word together. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. That was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shapen, and Jeremiah, and, I'm sorry, and Gemara, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. 
Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets or your diviners or um, who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. The word of the Lord. Well, if you've just been joining us for the past six weeks, we have been going through this book of Jeremiah. It's not much of a book of a (laughs) pick-me-up. Let's just say that so far in six weeks. Jeremiah, uh, the spokesperson for God, speaking God's words, has communicated that the people of Judah are in trouble. And what has propped them up? What has given them security? What has told them that there is going to be hope? God has taken a wrecking ball to it. He's taken a wrecking ball to the prophets, the priests, the scribes, really the The stool, the three-legged stool that holds up any society, the media, academia, government, he has destroyed them all, saying they are not a foundation. He's even gone after the temple, the symbol of national pride and power, and shown the corruption that is happening there. And then he has gone after God's promise, this covenant, this covenant that God would be with His people. That He would love them and care for them because they are the people of Abraham. And the people have just clung to this covenant and then promised to say, well, we can do whatever we dang well please. It doesn't matter. Because He'll be with us no matter what. And God says, there are blessings and cursings by breaking My covenant. You just can't break it and not see anything happen. So these institutions, this security, all that they have hoped in and found promise for has been destroyed. But the people have continued to push it off all through these first 25 chapters. It's not a problem. Come on, Jeremiah. You're just a downer. This message isn't from God. You're blasphemous. Try to kill Jeremiah. They say, oh, it's just the king, this puppet government, and we'll just blame the king. Oh, it's just other nations. It's Assyria or Babylon and Egypt. We'll blame them. 
Well, now when we get to this chapter in chapter 29, it's hard to blame other people. See, when you're at rock bottom and you're no longer sleeping in your bed, when you're no longer looking at the sunrise and sunset in your city, but instead you are looking at it in Babylon, you got to realize something happened. And something did happen on a specific date, the 16th of March, 597 B.C. King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came into Judah, invaded it, and took the cream of the crop of Jerusalem in Judah and dragged them to Babylon. This is the book of Daniel, right? Daniel might have been one of those people. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, same kind of thing. We read in the scriptures what that happens. And here, Jeremiah is explaining what is happening. And for the first kind of 25 chapters of Jeremiah, it has been denial, denial, denial of the judgment that is coming their way saying, oh, it's not that bad. But now we see the people have faced judgment. It has come. I hope you've gotten some of the theme that David and I have preached over the first six weeks of Jeremiah. The things that we've wanted to point out is this, that it's not just other people's problems. It's just not other people's issues. But maybe the issue is you. Maybe it is your own sin. Israel kept on denying, blaming others, blaming other situations. But Jeremiah, through God, or God, through Jeremiah, was communicating this. It is your problem. You are in trouble. Well, have you ever been in that place where you finally realize, you know, I, it was my problem. I'm in the place I am because what I've done. Maybe it's sitting on the stairs for time out. That's what I know when I did something wrong growing up. Maybe it was sitting in uh, detention at school. Uh, maybe it is realizing I'm sitting alone because people have avoided me because of my behavior. Maybe it's as extreme as sitting in a jail cell. That you realize there's a problem. Something has happened that I've done. Truth is, it might not be because of judgment. It might just be a time of humbling, realizing I'm not the top dog in my company or where I am. I've been demoted. I've had to move. Who knows how you got there, but you're there, feeling like an exile, feeling like a stranger, feeling like, man, I am not in the place I want to be. Well, whose fault is it? Let's look, shall we? The end of verse 3 and verse 4. You know, 
The king of Judah sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and it was said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles, whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. You know, it's easy to say it's Nebuchadnezzar's fault. It's Babylon's fault. They are the reason that Jerusalem and Judah and the Israelites are now in Babylon. But no, God points out constantly through Jeremiah, the reason you're in Babylon is because it is my plan. God says, I put you there. I am the one that orchestrated you to be in this place. You know, it can feel like it's been 25 chapters of tearing down and destroying and judgment and all those things, and now you're finally in the judgment seat that you feel like this is now God just saying, I told you so. It's, it's me sitting in timeout when I was young and my brother and sister walking past the stairway and saying, serves you right. It's kicking you when you're down. Right? That's what God is doing. No, I don't think so. If we go back to the theme verse of all of Jeremiah, it's chapter 1, verse 10. He says, I am using Jeremiah to show you that I will pluck you up, I will destroy you, I will overthrow you. To do what? To build and to plant. For 25 chapters, we have seen the plucking up, we've seen the destroying, we've seen the overthrowing. But now, for the latter part of the book of Jeremiah, we are seeing God saying, I want to build you up. I want to plant you. I want to support you. I want to give you a hope. This is not your brother and sister kicking you when you're down, saying, I told you so. This is mom or dad coming and sitting on the steps with you and holding you and saying, I love you and I care for you. Imagine. Imagine the letters, if you were still in Jerusalem, that these people your friends, your brothers, your sisters are sending back from Babylon. You know, that kid said, that wet spot is my tears. Imagine the tears of those people. The food there, the homes, the places they stay, the things that they're taught, a foreign place that they've never lived in their whole life, a whole new place. How do you think they felt? And what did they experience? And you see, Jeremiah points out the other prophets that were there, that were with them, what they were communicating to the people to give them encouragement. They're saying, oh, it's not that bad. We'll, we'll be back in a couple years. It'll be fine. Just Remove yourself from this culture. Remove yourself from Babylonian um, influence. Try to create our own little community. We'll be fine. We'll be back before you know it. And Jeremiah says those are nothing but lies. See, when you get the letter back from Jeremiah, you've got to be wondering, I don't want to hear what Jeremiah has to say. Right? This is the I told you so letter. Right? 
Jeremiah warned us this was going to happen, and now he's just going to dig it in. Oh, there you go. You tried to kill me. Now who's right, you know? No. Jeremiah says something that is just revolutionary. He says, what should you do in this place? You should build houses. You should find a Babylonian realtor. You should plant gardens, meaning you should go to the Babylonian farmer's market. You should settle down, join the gymnastics team, coach the softball team, give to charities, be involved in the life of the city, and seek its peace. The word there in the ESV is the welfare. Really, the Hebrew word is shalom. This doesn't just mean peace by civil peace, but means holistic peace. The health of the city, the righteousness of the city, the welfare of the city, all the aspects of the city, you should be seeking after that kind of peace. Now, if you were someone from Judah and got this letter, you might have been pretty upset. What are you talking about? These are our enemies. This is our punishment. Why should we settle here? This is what we get. And now we have to suffer while we're here. Don't tell me if I have to move to Chicago that I have to support the Chicago Bears. But that's what Jeremiah is saying. Seek the prosperity of the city that you are in. See, God has put you here to build you up, not to judge you, not to bring just judgment upon you. He's done it to plant you, to start something new in you. Yes, it is a consequence of your actions. It is a judgment. But God is using the judgment for His glory in your glory. And you can do that by serving the city as an exile. That's a, just a question that is so big for us here. And really the question of Jeremiah. Could God be using our exile for his benefit, his glory, and our welfare. Come on, we said it in the catechism, right? How do we glorify God? By trusting in him. How many of you say things like, oh, I guess I'm on now plan B in my life? I guess this is plan C or D or E or F. Maybe you don't even have the alphabet. It isn't even enough for the plan you are in your life right now. God says, no, this has always been plan A. This has been my purpose. To put you in this place for this time to experience this so that I would be glorified. I will use your time in exile, your time in Babylon, to refine you. It's a good question, isn't it? Are we exiles? 
Well, the New Testament calls us exiles over and over again. Did you know that? First Peter says, you, the church, are exiles. You Christians are exiles. Why? Because this is not your home. There is a kingdom to come. You do not serve the kings of this world. You serve the king of this universe. And you as exiles are ambassadors. You are servants. Representing my kingdom in this foreign place as resident aliens. I don't know if you've ever been around an ambassador before. I lived in D.C. for six years, so I was around ambassadors at times. It's a hard job to be an ambassador. You're a diplomat. You're representing the interest of your country, of your king or whatever it might be, at the same time living in a foreign place trying to show forth what your king wants in a place that is not your home, that you're trying to be winsome to and love and care about. See, a diplomat, a good diplomat, does not say, I don't want to be here. I hate being here. He loves the place he's in. One thing around Halloween time that we did in D.C. is we used to go to the embassies and they would hand out the best things for trick-or-treating. They got American culture. We love candy. And they welcomed us into their homes with amazing candy. I wonder, do you act like that where you are in life? Are you winsome? Do you care about the welfare of where you are? Or do you say things like, oh, I guess I'm serving my time in Siberia, Appleton, Wisconsin, because KC sent me here. Or I just have to be here for this time. One day it'll be over. I'll finally get out of this place. I'll be in a more interesting place, a warmer place. Maybe you think about that about your job. You whine about where you are in your job right now. I can't wait till I get out of this place. I can't wait till I retire. Maybe you think about that with your spouse or your family. My spouse is checked out. They have issues and problems. I, I, just, I just can't engage right now. I just, I just can't wait till it gets better. Could it be that God is using you in the place you are, where you feel like an exile, where you feel like a stranger, where you don't want to be, to build you up and to build his kingdom? Do we seek the welfare of Appleton? Do we care about its prospering? I hope we think about that when we think about a new place to be. 
where will we be as a church location-wise that it might serve the city, the welfare of this place that we live? Well, see, then there's the flip side. Do you people see that you belong to a different kingdom? Do people see that your home really isn't this home, but it is heaven? Do people see that the king you serve is not money or power or sex, but instead it's the king of the universe, God, and his son? Do people see, wow, why do you spend time with certain people on Sunday morning and you talk about them and you love them and you care for them and you serve them? Why do you sacrifice for others when it does not create your own gain? Why do you treat possessions like they are temporal, not some things that are all that matters? Do people see that in you? Do people see that you serve a different king than the king of this world? I'm going to say something crazy. This is kind of my thought here. It actually was good for the people of Judah to be in exile in Babylon. That's crazy. It was actually good for those people to be kicked out of their home, for their temple to be destroyed. It was good for them to be in exile and in suffering. Why was it good for them to be in that place? Because they finally saw what the kingdom of God was really about. Everything was stripped away. Everything was gone, so they saw who their God really was. That he cares for them and has hope for them, that he intercedes in even the darkest place, that that God is real. I wonder, in your exile, in your suffering places, when God puts you in that places, maybe he puts you there so that you would say that there is a God that cares for me in that place, that everything's stripped away. And he's still good. There was something about working in Washington, D.C. When I worked in Washington, D.C., everything revolved around that job. Everything was about that place and my job doing that work. But then when you get plucked from that job and taken from that place and you get sent somewhere else, you realize the world did not revolve around you. (laughs) That actually there is something greater and something working in this world more than your own personal gain. And God many times has to shake us and wake us up and pluck us away so we might see that. So how do you not disparage in that place? That's really the key. How do you still seek the welfare of that place even when you 
feel like you're a stranger. And that is where the strength comes from, from God. Say, God, you are the king. You can intercede and work for me even when it's hard. There is a God that works even in this place. Really, I think what God is showing is he's moving his people that are mourners to be missionaries. Moving his people from being simply mourners to missionaries. Okay, I got that first section done. Now to the part you guys all love, right? Here we go. The top five verse, I'd put in the top three of uh, verses. And you might not have known it came from the book of Jeremiah that we've been studying. I'll read it to you again. Chapter 29, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. So what you got to do is you got to pluck that verse from Jeremiah, slap it on your coffee mug. Maybe you could put it on some crochet thing. Maybe you can put it on your wall at home, your keychain, a bumper sticker. You can put it anywhere you want to. And you can say, God is going to give me whatever I want. He will fulfill my every desire. And that is really what this verse is telling me. He's here for my desires, for what I want. No. Okay, that's just a no. Okay, that was sarcasm, if you didn't get that. Uh, yeah, sorry, someone's laughing, this sarcasm. I'm sarcastic, yes, okay. Listen, we do a great disservice to the Bible when we pluck verses from its context. Okay? Now, I am not here to ruin all your hopes and dreams in Jeremiah 29.11. In fact, I am here to give you a greater understanding and meaning of it so that it becomes actually richer. So if you do have it on a keychain or up on your wall at home or whatever it might be, or you've memorized it a million times, it's your theme verse I'm not here to disparage that. Hopefully, I'm here to give you a fuller understanding and meaning and joy in that verse. Okay? So, first of all, let's understand the context. It's not found in a warm, fuzzy place of drinks with umbrellas. Okay? It's found in exile. In this book where you, many of you have been depressed and felt like we're judgmental, by going through these first 25 chapters. That's where it's found. And the you is not referring to you individually. It's first and foremost referring to Judah, the people of Judah, and their standing of being in exile in Babylon. And what is the immediate plan? For I know the plans I have for you. It's not for you getting a PlayStation or an Xbox. No, it's God's plan to return Judah from exile. David and I were talking about this earlier this week. This is the kicker of this verse. It's not going to happen right away. God's return of the people in Babylon back to Jerusalem is going to be in 70 years. The majority of these people are going to be dead by the time they return 
their sons or daughters or granddaughters to return back to Jerusalem. This isn't simply a quick, quick fix verse. God is communicating there is a larger plan at play. You see, God in this verse is showing that I'm just not here for your personal satisfaction and what you desire in this place. I have a plan, a grand narrative that I am scoping out throughout eternity. Yes, it's true for you, Judah, that in 70 years you will return back to Jerusalem. That is one part of the plan, but the plan is actually greater than that. Because you know what's going to happen? You'll return back to Jerusalem, but there will come another day where another nation will come and destroy the temple. There will come other days that you will be in exile. Those things will continue to happen. But I'm going to tell you of a hope, a hope that will come. I will send my son into this world. And my plan is that he will take on the sins and the corruption and the destruction of this world. He will take it upon himself. And the hope is that if you trust in him and you believe in him, that there will come a day where this world and all of its breaking down, all of its sin will be gone. That is my grand plan for my church, for my people. So yes, this verse is immediately talking about Judah, but it's also talking about the church. And if we are part of the church, it is also talking to us individually. God does have a hope for us. He does have a plan for us. But it's a much bigger than our simple desires. I think some of the best part of this passage is this hide and seek that happens. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all of your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. This isn't a cops and robbers hide and seek where the robbers don't want to be found. This is a hide-and-seek that I play with my girls. Little word of wisdom to parents with young children. Don't play hide-and-seek so you can't be found. Okay? It doesn't make a five-year-old happy. Okay? You hide in a place where you can be found. See, Israel's hope is found in God's willingness to be found not in Israel's ability to search. Israel's hope is found in God's willingness to be found, not Israel's ability to search. Okay, maybe you've checked out. Maybe if you're under 18, you've really checked out because that's what you do. But maybe I'm going to draw in the under 18-year-olds right now, okay? I'm not going to talk directly to my daughter, but maybe you should get that. There is no more time in my life, maybe there's more, no more time in your life, that you felt like more of an exile or an outsider or someone that was searching that when you were in middle school. 
Middle school was, it's just horrible. I'm sorry. I mean, maybe some of you love it. I don't know, some of you middle schoolers. It's just not a good time. Recently, I saw a movie that's through the lens of an eighth grader. And it's by a, a director and a writer that's not a Christian. But in the movie, there's a prayer that she gives. And the truth is, it's a prayer that sounds a lot like my prayers. Sounds like your prayers, maybe. She prayed this. Dear God, tomorrow is a really, really important day for me. And I really need you to make it a good day. I understand that every day can't be a great day, but I really need it to be a good one. Even if you give me a ton of bad days in the future, as long as you can make tomorrow a good day. Well, that is all. Thank you. Love, Kayla. What's interesting about this movie is the day didn't turn out the way that she wanted. In her perspective, it was a pretty horrible day and a pretty scary day. Not a day that she might have wanted. You know, what made it worse is, you know, her father was around during that day. Ugh, dads, when you're in middle school, that can be hard and difficult. But her dad was there to be found. And you see some really bad things happened to her in the day. And all the things that she thought made her world valuable and important were just getting crushed. And it's so, it's so, this is so fascinating. This is what Hollywood gives us. A non-Christian director gives us. A guy that says, I don't believe in God. He gives us this girl's prayer, and then he gives us this picture at the end of her horrible day. She says, Dad, will you come out with me? And she takes a box of all her dreams. Will you set a fire for me? And she takes it and she burns it on the fire. And her dad just, he just speaks love into her. Just speaks it into her. And then what you see is, here this eighth grade girl. You know, when you're a freshman or eighth grade girl, this is where it gets hard. You're getting too big. But she gets up from her chair and she sits in her dad's lap. And he just holds her. As she just cries. You see, verse 11 says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. It doesn't say, you know the plans you have for you. God says, I know the plans I have for you. Listen, we can say catechisms, we can read the Bible, we can say all the things we want to and what we believe, but do you really believe that God has better plans for your life than you do? Do you really believe that? In your situation right now, in your pain, 
in the loss of people that have died in your life, in your job, I know your lives. I know the pain you experience. Do you believe that God actually has a better plan for you than you do? So that when you pray prayers to him, they say, God, I want this. I want that. Please provide this for me. Are you really seeking after him? Or are you seeking after you? Because let me tell you, I guess I can, all I can do is speak from experience. It's all I can do. When you search after him with your full heart, when you come after him honestly and say, God, I really want what's best from your point of view. If you really do that, let me tell you from my experience, he will give you something better than you could ever plan yourself. Because he knows you better than you know yourself. He knows what you really need. And he'll send you into exile. He'll put you in a hard place. See, what is God's response to our letters? Right, that's what we do. We send letters to God. God, this is painful. This is hard. Help me. Rescue me. Our prayers are those camp letters. And how does God respond? Here, let me send you a sticker. Buck it up. Here's a letter I'll give back to you. I'll be there soon. No. He comes and gets us. He goes into exile. He goes from his comfortable place and he comes down into this broken place, our broken place, and he lives this broken place more than we ever could by taking it all on upon himself. You see, when we see a God that is able to come into exile for us, that gives us the power and strength to live as resident aliens in this place and in this broken world with hope. Because we are united with him. God in this place he is telling them, I will build you up. I will plant you. This is good news. This is good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know what we're dealing with. You know how we feel like strangers, how we feel alone, how we feel abandoned. Remind us of your coming. Remind us that you walked in this place. That you didn't just send letters, but you sent your son. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.